Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. One of the major questions around not just basic income, but how the economy is changing is what do we do about the shift toward contract work and specifically toward gig work? And there's a, a new set of economically insecure workers who are mostly centered around the gig economy. And a new fund called the Workers' Strength Fund sought to explore how these workers could benefit from unconditional cash. So the Workers' Strength Fund is a combined effort across several different organizations and individuals. One of those folks, Rachel Snyder, we've previously had on the podcast to talk about her book, The Financial Diaries. And she was the lead product advisor for the Workers' Strength Fund. But we're also joined by Melissa Gopnik, who's the senior vice president with Commonwealth, and Betsy Adassari, who's the program director at the Workers' Lab, who all worked in collaboration to make this initiative possible. So here's Rachel Schneider, Melissa Gopnik, and Betsy Adassari with Jim Hugh on the Basic Income Podcast. All right, Rachel, Melissa, and Betsy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having us. So to start with, can you just tell us where did the idea for the Workers' Strength Fund come from? Betsy, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so thanks again, Jim, for, for having us on this call. Um, so really, it was a couple of years ago, we were in a few different conversations about the future of work. And the first, um, the first conversation was about there was this sort of concern that the rise of gig work and the rise of the gig economy um, was undermining the benefits and protections that workers had access to. And the second was this belief um, that the safety net needed to be reimagined to include benefits that were portable and mobile, right? Um, and we know that many people are working more than one job and they're moving between different types of work. Uh, and the last was there was a report that was released by the Federal Reserve that showed that nearly two thirds of U.S. workers um, did not have a thousand dollars saved in the case of an emergency, um, and also that four in ten could not easily afford even four hundred dollars in the case of an emergency. Um, so at the workers' lab, you know, I wasn't there at the time, but <laughs> Carmen was, and um, we were talking to Rachel and reading her book, The Financial Diaries, and we were coming across really story after story about how low and middle income families across the country were struggling with acute financial challenges, right? Um, and these challenges were just having an immense impact on them, both financially and psychologically. Um, so at the Workers Lab, we were asking ourselves, right, like who is working on solving these very real uh, near-term challenges that are facing workers? Um, and who is actually asking workers about what they needed. And so that was really for us, I think all of these things taken together motivated us to launch um, a design sprint for social change. And it was focused on tackling the problem of getting workers the money they need when they need it. Yeah, if I can chime in also, I'd add that one of the things that was so inspiring about the design sprint from the beginning was the willingness to work across sectors. So Carmen um, and I had met through um, a few different meetings where people were focused on portable benefits or focused on what the challenges that workers experienced and where both activists who think about it from the perspective of workers' rights and worker power, which is very much how I characterize the workers' lab, and um, activists who think about it from the perspective of financial services and financial well-being and financial security um, were included in the same room, which is often not the case, right? But but 
Rockefeller Foundation and the Aspen Institute each held meetings where people from both sides of thinking about these issues were included. And that gave us a new window into thinking about how solutions could be formed. And so, you know, as Carmen was thinking about the design sprint, she was really impressive, I think, in figuring out that and and being willing to put the staff times toward cross-sector collaboration. And so it brought a whole set of new ideas from each of us who were participants in that early, those early design sprint meetings into the room and allowed us to think more broadly about what is the intersection between benefits and what workers should get as part of being remunerated fairly for their work and what is the broader set of financial supports that people need in order to live the lives that they deserve. So you told us a bit about the design here, but I'm curious, can you just say a bit more about how that process went and how it led to you ending up where you did with the design? Rachel, do you want to speak to that? So the the first step was, yeah, I'll start this and then I think you should um, take over. Um, So the first step was um, a few fairly open-ended meetings where the workers lab invited he and a few other people, and we we talked broadly about what we thought the problem was and how we thought we should solve it, and went out and did user interviews immediately. And so right away, the project was being informed by the perspective of workers, and um, that informed what came next. Um, but the vision was always to launch a new service of some kind, to, to create a new portable benefit. And so the other thing I have to give the workers lab a lot of credit for in their design and and managing of this process is that they brought people into the process over time that were the right experts to move us to each next phase. So at the beginning, when we were brainstorming, um, we had one group of people in the room. And when we were doing the early user testing, um, and when it came time to execute, um, by then the workers lab had invited Commonwealth to be part of the team. And then I think this is Melissa, I think when we came on board a couple of years ago now, we really um, felt like it was really important that we uh, test this idea in the real world um, to see how both workers would respond to it and how potential um, distribution partners, who the people were that were going to get this out into the world, would respond to this idea. Um, Because you really, you can sit in a room all day talking to each other, but you don't really know if an idea has any traction until you actually tested in the real world. And so that's when we came on. So you all ran a pre-pilot of the Workers' Strength Fund from late 2018 through early 2019. How exactly did you structure that program and what ended up being the results from that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the goal of that pre-pilot was really to, to learn a lot. As I previously said, it's really important to understand what you don't know. And the only way to do that is often to talk to the intended audience and distribution partners. Um, and we wanted to test out some payments technology at the same time to really think about the best way of rolling out a large-scale pilot for 500 people. Um, so we started with just trying to give money to 30 people, and we started partnering with gig economy platforms um, to have them do outreach um, to a small group of people. Um, But what we quickly found was, in fact, uh, there was such a high degree of skepticism about people who got this email saying, you know, you're eligible for $1,000, that the 
fastest way to get people um, to engage with us was through word of mouth. So after a couple of weeks of uh, gig economy platform sending out an email and not getting a lot of traction, we told people, tell your friends and communities about this. And within you know 48 hours, we were overwhelmed uh, with requests. Um, so that was a huge learning for us in terms of how uh, who people trust and how to overcome skepticism about the whole concept um, of giving people $1,000. Um, we also learned um, that for those people we did give money to, it really had an impact. Um, that $1,000 could and did have an impact on people's sense of financial well-being and financial security and their ability to um, work. Um, so that was an important learning for us. Um, and I think you, the final learning was it's really hard to give people money, <laughs> which may sound counterintuitive, but the entire payments ecosystem is set up for individuals to pay companies, right? So if you think about um, or individuals to pay each other, um, Venmo or PayPal, the vast majority of transactions are individual to individual or individual to company. The concept of a company paying a person outside of any kind of employment um, is foreign to the system. And so uh, that was a huge learning for us around how that was a whole kind of new way of thinking about uh, who pays who for what. So. After this pre-pilot, you've now recently launched a much larger pilot program, this time with 500 recipients in four different cities. Can you say what's happened with that program so far? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to answer that. So we've, again, used um, outreach partners, a couple of different gig economy platforms. And this time we actually decided um, to limit it to people on those platforms. Um, and so far, we funded around 300 people in Dallas, Detroit, San Francisco, and New York all of them gig workers. Um, we have some early preliminary results for from talking to people we funded. Um, the two most requested emergencies um, were around housing, whether it was rent or utility payments, and car repairs, um, around a third for each of them. Um, and then the median cost of the emergency was about $1,300. So our $1,000 contribution was significant. Um, in terms of them being able to pay for their emergency. What was also interesting was around 70% said that it prevented them from working their emergency. Lack of a car, lack of being able to pay for their utilities stopped them from working. Not surprising given that the type of work that many of these um, people are engaging in. Um, and yet around 80% have said that getting the funds allowed them to go back to work. Um, which is exactly what we had hoped, was that a little bit of infusion of cash in a fairly quick way would prevent a downward spiral, which often happens to lower income folks who experience a financial emergency. So, you know, we're still doing a lot of evaluation um, to really understand more deeply who this works for and why. Um, we have some hypotheses, but have no proof yet. Um, but um, I really uh, think there's a huge amount to learn from what happens when you trust people and just give them money when they ask for it um, as quickly as possible. Sure, or Rachel, would you want to add something based on 
No, I was just sitting here um, being so excited to hear everything you were saying. I think it's phenomenal. One thing I would add is that I think it would be easy to think that we understand the financial challenges that people experience, right? particularly from where I sit, where I spent a lot of my life on a long research project to understand the financial lives of low-wage workers. Um, and for those of us in the field who spend a lot of time like following the really deep and extraordinary research of organizations like Commonwealth, and the Federal Reserve, and um, there's really amazing data coming out of the Aspen Institute, coming out of more organizations than I can name right now. And so I think it's easy to think, well, we know it all already. But then when I hear um, what people are using the money for and hear this answer that people are saying, well, this hardship did get in the way of my working and my getting this money allowed me to get back to work. I feel like I hear a whole new layer of the challenge for people. And I see in this data that um, makes makes real something that we've had an intuition about, but haven't explored this directly. So you've talked about a few things already, but I'm curious throughout this entire process, what has surprised you either during the design of it or, or in the administration and execution? I'll start with one, and then um, I'm sure Beth and Rachel have things to say about this. Um, what really was surprising in some way, because we think of the world today as impersonal, right? It's all online, and it's it's not about personal connections as much as it used to be. It's not about your neighborhood. It's not about your faith group as much as it used to be. And what was really surprising to me is how much personal connections mattered, that people wanted to know that their peer group people that they trusted were people like them and that's who they trusted to provide them advice about how to deal with this financial emergency. Um, And that was somehow eye-opening for me to kind of understand that that real in-person connection with other people um, still matters a great deal in terms of who people trust um, and I think really influences how we think about how we provide solutions to people who are financially vulnerable. I appreciate you saying that, Melissa, because I think it's really tied to that idea you were mentioning earlier, right, about the skepticism, right? And so I think for for me, and, and certainly I've heard it from Carmen at the Workers' Lab, the people's ongoing skepticism around the idea um, of a no-strings-attached grant even when there's transparency about who's paying in, I think that continued to to really uh, strike a chord, right? Because folks were wondering who's who would give away a thousand dollars with no strings attached. There has to be a catch. It's too good to be true. Like what's in it for them? And to me, I think what stands out about that is that people have been preyed so preyed upon right, by the existing systems that um, are meant to serve and protect them that it's. Um, that trust can be so hard uh, to have. And then I, I would just say two other things that um, were striking to hear. One was that how much people have come to believe that working while being poor is normal <laughs> um, and that somehow the individual choices that they've made at some point in their life um, has meant that, you know, they as individuals are solely responsible for their economic situation. Um, and in some of the some of the things we heard, it just felt like that was a thread that came 
then another piece was um, that was really compelling for us was how many people were really drawn to the idea of a collective fund, an option to pay forward, um, so that even though, you know, folks might feel an individual sense of responsibility for their situation, they also experienced, you know, a deep sense of responsibility to take care of each other. So on the note you raised, Betsy, about the skepticism around unconditional cash, I'm curious, I mean, obviously, this is the basic income podcast, and there is this larger conversation that has been happening over the last few years around the idea of universal basic income. I'm curious how you see this project connecting to that, if, if, if you do see it connecting. Well, one of the things that I think it, that I find powerful about the basic income, about the case for basic income, is the trusting people to use their resources well. Right. So often in our social services delivery, we're very bossy with people. We'll help you with housing, but not with um, that housing, just this housing. We'll help you with food, but this exact amount of food and it can only be bought in this place. And so I think a really powerful thing that the UBI um, field has brought into the conversation around social services delivery is the trusting individuals to know what they need. And so I think this work that we've been doing very much comes from that same desire to treat people with dignity and treat people with um, confidence that they know what's right for them. I think there's some places where we are trying something dramatically different than UBI. Um, and I, I don't really think, think of this work as a variant necessarily on universal basic income, but I think it shares some ideological underpinnings. So assuming the ongoing pilot program goes well, what do you see as the next steps here? So I think there's a few paths, um, at least two next steps, and I'm sure that um, Betts and Melissa will chime in. But um, in order to make this idea a reality, right? So, so this pilot is phenomenal in building our understanding about what people need and how they would use money. And it models a way of delivering help for people that's really important. But in order to then take that idea and make it more, make it a real thing in our society, we really need to pursue paths. One is to think more deeply about policy that could be enacted that would make um, this work, would make this idea part of the social safety net for people. And in that case, you know, I'm thinking about your question about UBI, in a way, we come, I feel like that work could come full circle. So I know some of the UBI-inspired work has also led towards thinking about how the EITC can be expanded. I think that this work we've been doing also contributes into a conversation around how do you want the EITC to work. And so we've imagined a variety of different policy approaches that one could take to offer a strategic and well-timed and easy, flexible cash infusion to workers as they need them. I also think there is a private sector approach here and an argument to be made to employers that having an emergency cash grant fund available for their workers is valuable and worthwhile as a part of the overall benefits infrastructure. And one thing that we were paying attention to in parallel with designing this design spread was the existing phenomenon of employer hardship funds. And so the Aspen Institute of Commonwealth had wrote a white paper earlier this year 
around that idea. And so we are working more around, more on the idea of can you, how can you get employers to offer this as a service? How can you make that easy for them? And so an offshoot of the design sprint is that we are, we've also launched some smaller pilots with W2 workers. And so partnering with some employers to be able to offer emergency cash grants to their workers as well. And we're not using exactly the same format as the Workers' Strength Fund, but it's sufficiently similar that I think we'll have some shared learnings. And the goal is to expand that work over time and be um, working more on both a private sector and a policy focus to bring the idea of a cash grant into more common use. That was Jim Pugh, Rachel Schneider, Melissa Gopnik, and Betsy Adassery on the Basic Income Podcast. I found it interesting how they kept coming back to this idea of not just financial solvency, but worker power, and how gig workers, they have all this flexibility, but what you trade for that is the ability to negotiate with your boss, because often your boss is a platform. It's not even clear who you would call if you had an issue with the work, and often we overlook this element of how the economy is changing because it's easy to focus on the benefits of a a gig platform that you can pick up and put down as you need, but it undercuts the ability of workers to organize and build power because it's unclear who your boss is and who who you organize with if you wanted to to do such a thing. Yeah, I do think that's such an important point. And so often get to miss when thinking about how do we design for a social contract in the future that actually works for everyone, is it's not just about the theoretical economics of the situation. It is about, yeah, how power exists in that system, what leverage different people have, and what in practice that actually manifests as as, as things move forward. And so I, I do think that that's, that really is the factor that that should be centered when we are talking about how do we actually change our systems to really support people in a meaningful way. Yeah, and you know, we've had union leaders on this podcast before, and I've, I've mentioned before that a lot of union people are very skeptical of the idea of basic income, and I think it's because it seems to be saying, you know, what you need is cash, and we'll, we'll just give you some cash, and then you can take care of it on your own. What's the problem? And they're counterpoint is often, yes, we need cash, but we also need the ability to fight for ourselves and represent ourselves. And this new economy that you keep talking about doesn't really have a place for that. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I I think a lot of times you end up with people really talking past each other, because oftentimes it is on, it's on such a separate dimension than the cash conversation that I think there's just this translation issue sometimes between, as you say, folks in the labor space and people who might be starting these gig economy companies. Um, and if we could actually really dig in on that, I think that there's some, I think there could be best of both world solutions, but oftentimes we overlook them because of that lack of understanding. Yeah. And it's a generational divide too. I think millennials and under don't really have a strong experience of union power and it seems like this thing that happened in the 70s that unions were a big deal and and now they're like not many you know people under 40 are part of a union right now and have that experience of 
striking. And obviously, you know, strikes are in the news and they still happen, but it, they seem, I think, a lot more foreign to today's young people than whereas before you you got your job, you joined the union for the job, and um, that's how you had bargaining power uh, against your boss. Something else that stood out to me from the interview is the emphasis they placed on on really co-designing with the users of the program. So they didn't come in and say, all right, we're smart people. Let's figure out what's going to be the way to go. They really had an iterative process talking to people who they were planning to serve with the program to, to really understand what their needs were and what different proposed solutions, how they saw those working or not working. And that's ultimately what led them to the approach that they adopted. I think the approach they adopted showed the power of their design. And I think you could see that in how cash, unconditional cash, was able to increase worker participation in at least some of the cases they cited of, um, I mean, your, your car breaking down. A lot of the gig work is, you know, ride sharing, Lyft and Uber, that kind of thing. And if your car breaks down, you have to stop working. And if you don't have immediate cash to make that happen, then you could be out of work for a week or two weeks. And, you know, you can see how that can cascade. And I, I think, you know, the one of the most common assumptions around unconditional cash is that people will stop working because they don't have to. But the notion that cash can in, increase the labor force, I think, is a pretty powerful selling point. The other thing that I thought was quite interesting is them talking about how much they observed this normalization of the idea that you it's yeah you you can just be poor when you're working and that's just a thing which is I mean historically well you by far enough maybe that was historically true but certainly for most of the 20th century the whole idea was oh if you have a job you're in pretty good shape and that's not true anymore and so I think that that so so much of the way we've approached our safety net, our social contract broadly, has had that built-in assumption that if you have a job, you're doing okay. And the fact that that's, that's not true for so many people, I think, does point a, a pretty big finger to why, why we do have this tense tension, this financial precarity that, that we do today. Yeah, and I'll just say that's another generational divide. I think our our parents' generation, you know, they're they're used to that notion that you have a job, you have a job, you're doing okay. You can probably even afford to buy a home and feed your family with maybe just one job. And yeah, that that's not true anymore for most people. Uh, and, and yeah, it's another case where we can often kind of talk past each other when when we're having these discussions. All right, that'll do it for this episode. And as a reminder, if you like what you hear on the Basic Income Podcast, please do contribute to support our work by going to glow.fm slash basicincome. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Please rate us and review us on the podcast service of your choice and tell your friends. We're always looking to broaden this conversation. We'll see you next week. Music.